I'm going to open us in prayer and just turn our service over to David, and he will do with it as he will. It's going to be an awesome time. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of music. Thank you for the way it speaks to our hearts, and I pray that tonight as David comes to share, it will be a blessing for all of us. I pray that we'll hear his testimony in music and his testimony in word and just bless all that takes place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. And two, I just got back from doing uh, several services in southern Florida where it was like 1,000% humidity and 100 degrees every day. So when I walked out of the hotel this morning and it was 30, 30 degrees or so, I was like, it's Christmas time. And I'm so excited about that. But also, I play that song all year round because you know what? We're supposed to be a people of joy. 
Right? We're supposed to be people who, even when we're dealing with difficult situations and difficult circumstances, man, we walk with a, a bounce in our step and a smile on our face because despite it all, we know that God is good. Amen? But I do have one little problem with that song, and that is, you know, as I travel all across the country without fail when I play that song, somebody will stop me after the service and say, David, that fast part was kind of cool, but you weren't really playing that, were you? And I'll say, well, yeah, I was. And they say, but it sounds like two flutes at the same time. That's not possible. And I say, well, apparently it is because I just did it. And they say, no, it's not. I say, yes, it is. And more times than I can count, I have to pick up my flute after a service and prove to people that it is me playing both parts at the same time. I got a long drive tonight. So I thought I would just save myself a little time and show you right now. Is that okay? So I'm going to do this without any help from you guys. You guys upstairs, you don't need to do anything. No background track at all. So this is just going to be me and the flute. <laughs> and I'm going to try and do this. Here we go. Now, you know, I know that some of you, oh, thank you very much, both of you, thank you. <laughs> but I still kind of got this feeling that there's a couple of you going, yeah, that was okay, but that didn't really sound as fast as what you just played. And well, you know, since you've challenged me so, I guess I have no choice but to play this faster, so I'm going to try, here we go. I go faster? <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. You know, you may have noticed a pastor friend of mine a few months ago stopped me and said, Hey, David Kay, did you realize that when you play really fast stuff that your eyebrows move up and down in time to the music? I was like, I did not know that, but how kind of you to point that out. So I'm going to try and play this faster without moving them, but I don't know if that's possible. You know, it's like people who talk with their hands. If you want them to be quiet, what do you do? You give them something to hold on to? Right? And they can't talk anymore. So this may be the situation, but I'll give it a shot. You're looking at my eyebrows right now, aren't you? I could feel the pressure. I can't help it. They're not moving at all. Thank you very much. Go ahead, fellas, and hit that next slide if you would. <laughs> you know, whenever uh, 
we gather together, it's an opportunity to worship. Right? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And that's why I like to play this song. This song is one of the first ones I do all the time. It says, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. And that's why we're here tonight, right? Ultimately, it's to honor Him. This song is called Glory to God.
This next song says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With all of creation, I sing praise to the King of Kings because you are my everything and I will adore you. We make worship way too complicated sometimes, don't we? It's really just simply saying to God, Holy, 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 you are holy. And that's what this song is.
Amen. You know, before I share with you my story a little bit, I want to play another song for you. It's one of the first songs I ever wrote, actually, and it's written based on an experience I had when I was about 14 years old, and it's really taken on a new meaning uh, for me the last couple of years, and you'll understand why here in a little bit, but this song was written based on an experience I had when a gentleman from our church became very sick, and uh, they took him to the hospital, and we got a call that later that night that he probably wasn't going to make it through the night. So my dad was going to see this guy, and he asked me if I wanted to go. Now, I didn't do that a whole lot, but at 14 years old, especially, but for whatever reason, I went that night with my dad. And I remember walking into his hospital room and seeing him laying there with all the tubes and hoses and everything connected. You could tell what a, and hear what a struggle it was for him to breathe. And I could tell that every time he was exhaling, he was saying something, but I couldn't figure out what it was until I stood right beside his bed. As I stood beside his bed, he would struggle to take in a breath, and as he let it out, he would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He would struggle to take in another breath, and as he let it out, he'd quote the next line of the 23rd Psalm, another breath, and the next line of the 23rd Psalm, and he did that over and over and over again. Man, you hear so much about what you're supposed to cling to in this life, right, and what's important. And here is a guy who was literally in his last moments, and he wasn't trying to hold on to his his car, his stuff, his house, his bank accounts, his money, even his family or friends, he was clinging to the one thing that no one could take from him, and that was his faith in God. And I remember standing there thinking to myself as a 14-year-old, man, if that were me, what would I try to hold on to right now? He impacted my life so much, and he had no idea I was even in the room. So much so that I, several years later I wrote this song because I wanted to demonstrate through the music what I saw going on inside of him, this inner strength, this deep inner, inner peace that he had, and this deep, deep, strong faith. And really, I guess I wrote this song as a testament to his faith, and I just couldn't think of a better title than just to call it, I Shall Not Want. Go ahead, hit that next slide, please.
Amen. Thank you very, very much. It is a joy to be with you tonight. And I know there's one looming question in your mind. What does the K stand for? I'm sure it's been driving you crazy. You wouldn't say it. I understand why. Nobody does. My last name is Constantopoulos. That's why I go by David K. And even then, most people just go, ah, oh, you're that flute guy, so that's why I go by that flute guy. And as you might imagine, everywhere I go, nobody pronounces my name right. My all-time favorite mispronunciation of my name is one time when my son was playing baseball. They introduced him as Samuel Constantly Lopez. <laughs> it's like, all right, whatever. So we just answered to it, but it's, it's just a joy to be with you. Uh, I come from Johnson City, Tennessee, not too far, about four hours or so from here. And uh, just a joy to be with you tonight, so thank you for having me. Go ahead and show that next slide if you would, Rob. 2 Corinthians 4.8 says, this is a paraphrase, We often suffer, but we are never crushed. Even when we don't know what to do, we never give up. And I think that's one of the things that should define us as Christians, really. We know that we're supposed to be known by our love, right? But I also think part of what should define us is that we don't give up, even when we're faced with very difficult situations and circumstances. Hopefully because through our faith we understand that we serve a God that is so much bigger. A God that is so much greater than any challenge or, or difficulty that we might face. So if I was going to title one, I'm going to share with you my testimony thing, it'd be this. Keep the faith. Go ahead and show that next slide. I don't know if you remember who Derek Redmond is. Actually, go ahead and show the next one too. Derek Redmond was a British runner in the 92 Olympics. This guy was so fast and so good. Uh, everybody just knew he was going to win a medal. It was just a matter of which one. And in fact, I think in the first race, hang on, you're right there. Uh, in the first race, I think he uh, actually broke a, an Olympic record. But in the next to last race, this is what happened. As he was coming out of turn one, man, he popped a hamstring. And he just laid there on the track just sobbing. I mean, imagine what was going through his mind. All the hopes and dreams and all that was just over. Well, everyone else finished the race, and then the cameras eventually panned back to Derek, and he got up and he started doing this little hobble step thing like this. Anybody remember this? 92 Olympics? Yeah, he was doing this little hobble step. He goes all the way into the back turn, and he gets into the final turn. His dad, go ahead and show that next one. His dad comes running out of the stands. And all the track officials were like, you can't do that. And his dad's like, watch me. You know, and he goes over and puts his arms around his son, and they hobble across the finish line together. Man, it was something to see. The crowd had been silent, but when they crossed the finish line, man, they, they just erupted like, <sighs> I was at home by myself. I jumped up on the couch, and I was like, because <sighs> it was something so spectacular to see. Now, remember, he didn't win anything. He didn't qualify even for the next race. His Olympic dream was over. Think of all the thousands of hours, all the, all the money, all the sacrifice was for nothing, but he was determined to finish the race that was set before him. And because he did so, man, he inspired millions upon millions, me being one of them. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And that's why I say again, keep the faith. But we know we're going to face challenges in life. The question is, what do we do? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, initiator, perfecter of our faith. And sometimes people say to me, well, pfft, how could Jesus possibly understand what I'm going through? I mean, he was the son of God. And I say, well, let's look. If you look in the Gospels, you remember when Jesus is praying in the garden, he kind of knows what's going to happen. He's about to be betrayed, you know, all that, the, about to be crucified not long before that. And Jesus is praying in the garden, and it says that his soul is crushed with grief, even to the point of death. 
And Jesus was struggling with what was coming. And then he even prays this prayer. He prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Almost like saying, surely, Father, there's got to be another way. I think Jesus understood what it was going to feel like to carry the weight of the sins of the world and what it was going to feel like to have those closest to him just, just abandon him in a moment's notice. I think he understood all of that. But still Jesus was faithful. Because then he goes on to pray, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In other words, Father, it doesn't matter what I want. All that matters is what you want for me. Can you imagine having the power to change the outcome of a situation and choosing not to to be faithful to God's plan? Y'all, it's a good thing I'm not God. Because there are all kinds of people on this earth I could just flick right off. Boink. Boink. <laughs> Boink. That was a big one. <laughs> you, know, you know, so don't judge me, by the way. <laughs> you know, so it's like I under, we understand, but man, that was the example that Jesus set for us. So sometimes people say, okay, well, that's fine, but still that was Jesus. Well, if you read before chapter 12, there's this passage called chapter 11 that has all these amazing people of faith like Noah. He taught us about patience. 120 years building an ark with no rain. Can you imagine what life must have been like? Somebody coming up to him about year 63 and going, dude, you've been working on this bad boy for 63 years and it still isn't raining. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Do you think this is really going to happen? Did you just bump your head or something? But still Noah was faithful. He continued to work because he understood that when God says something's going to happen, when God says to do something, God is always going to do what he said he was going to do in his time. Have you ever had those moments when it felt like it was taking God forever to fulfill his promises in your life? If you feel that way, man, maybe you could hear Noah whispering in your ear, look, whatever you do, don't give up, man, just keep the faith. It may feel like it's taken forever, but God will always do what he promised he would do. And then there's somebody like Abraham who taught us about uh, trust. Abraham had been given this promise about this great generation that was going to come from him, as many as the stars in the sky. And they finally had Isaac, the beginning of the promise fulfilled. Yay! And then all of a sudden, God kind of throws him a curveball and says, hey, you know what? I need you to sacrifice your son to me. But God, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you gave me this promise, this great generation. He's the first one. He's the beginning. And now you want me to throw that all away? That just doesn't make sense. But still, he was faithful. He gathers up all the stuff. He takes his kid. They're going up the hill to, to build the altar and to do the sacrifice. And his, you know, Isaac's like, Dad, we don't have anything for the offering. And Abraham's like, Dad, don't worry. God will provide. <laughs> that means you. you know, and they go and they build the altar. He puts his son on the altar. He goes to commit the sacrifice. And only then is his arm stopped. Has God ever called you to do something that just doesn't make sense to anyone around you? And they let you know it. Have you ever been in those moments where being faithful to, to, to live what you know you were called to live doesn't make sense to people around you? In those moments, when it feels that way, maybe you could hear Abraham whispering in your ear, look, whatever you do, don't give up. I know it may not make sense right now, but man, God knows what he's doing. And in time, it will make sense and you will understand. Just keep the faith. And then we can learn from somebody like Joseph, man, if there's anyone who understood a difficult life, man, it was that guy. I mean, he had all of these brothers, most of them didn't like him. Um, they were going to kill him, and the one brother that did like him said, no, let's not do that, let's just throw him in the big hole in the ground, the big pit. So they throw him in the pit, and then they see slave traders going by, and they're like, score, let's sell him as a slave, that's even better. They sell him as a slave, he endures all kinds of difficulty, hardship. He sees a little light at the end of the tunnel, and he's making his way out of it. You remember he's serving at Potiphar's house, and 
He's got a little responsibility, some clean clothes and all that. Then Potiphar's wife shows up, you know, uh, advances on him, and all of a sudden he literally has to leave everything behind, and he ends up worse off than before. Man, if there's anyone who understood loss and rejection and abandonment and betrayal, it had to be that guy. But still, he was faithful. And as you know, God turned the story around, and he became a man who controlled the grain and the money and had power in the land. Have you ever had moments when it felt like life was falling apart? In those moments, maybe you could hear Joseph whispering in your ear, look, whatever you do, don't give up. Man, just keep the faith. Anybody can serve God when everything's going great. But if you really want to see the test of someone's character, how do you serve God when everything's falling apart? And you might say, well, David Kay, that's just a swell little story from, from the Bible about people and life, but what do you know about life falling apart? Thank you for asking. In February of 2016, my wife was diagnosed with a rare infection, ESBL positive E. coli. They tried every antibiotic on the market, and uh, nothing would, would kill this infection. We'd been in the hospital five days, and we thought she was going to die. A brand new antibiotic came out on the market that was super strong. We tried it. Thank God it started killing the infection. She did 10 days of IV bags of antibiotics about that big that went through a pick line directly into her heart. Finally killed the infection, but as you know, stuff like that's like <laughs> radioactive practically. It just destroyed her immune system. We got out of the hospital. Literally, we'd been home from the hospital about a day and a half, and I got a call that my dad had had a massive heart attack. And I was like, man, do I, how do I leave my wife who's you know, so weak and go see my dad? And I was trying to figure out what to do. I went and saw my dad. Came home from seeing my dad. I literally had been home about two days, and I felt a little, little, just a little bit of pressure in my chest. And I, I told my wife, and she said, man, you've got to go to the doctor now. You've got history. And I was like, Psh, it's in my head. Don't worry about it. She's like, you've got to go. I was like, I'm not going. It's in my head. She's like, I'll make you meatloaf. I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, meatloaf, heart condition. Anyway, so I, thank you. <laughs> so, so we go to the ER, and uh, when I see the doctor's face, I knew it wasn't good news. It turns out that the uh, LAD artery, which they call the Widowmaker, was 98% blocked. The other main artery was like 96, 7% blocked. And he said to me, you should have been dead months ago. He said, truthfully, you should have had a heart attack walking in here from the parking lot. And that's a lot. And that's all in the span of just about a week and a half. And you go, okay, phew, that's a lot, God, but we got this. We trust you. About a week and a half later, my 16-year-old daughter comes up to me and says, Dad, my chest hurts. Now, you know, the other things chip away at your faith. Chip away at your fight, chip away at your resolve, chip away at your strength. And then when things continue to pile on, you start asking yourself, come on, God, how, can this, how much more could we possibly endure? But my daughter, who was an athlete who could play two soccer games back-to-back, -back, suddenly overnight couldn't walk across this room without getting dizzy and almost passing out. She literally went from super active to completely sedentary overnight because of her heart and rhythm issues and all that kind of stuff. She ended up uh, actually having heart surgery. And if you would, keep her in your prayers. Because two years later, some of those symptoms are starting to return. And we're kind of going through the process all over again. So I would really covet your prayers for my daughter, Anna. So she goes through all of that. Literally, about two to three weeks later, I was speaking at a youth camp in Virginia for a bunch of teenagers. And due to complications of the blood thinners, they put me on for the stents in my heart. You know, they do that so you won't get blood clots around those new stents. Due to complications from that, I developed a hemorrhage, a bleed in my brain. 
They rushed me to the hospital. I spent two week, over two weeks in the hospital, I think, eight or nine days in intensive care. Most excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life. I didn't eat or drink for over five days. So when I tell you I understand what it means for life to fall apart in a matter of weeks, trust me that I know, I know what I'm talking about. And I want to be, you know, let, me, let me back up and say this. I remember a team of doctors standing there and talking to my wife and I and saying, here's the deal. If we don't take him off the blood thinners, he's going to continue to bleed in his brain and he's going to die. That's a certain fact. There's no way around it. They said, or we can take him off the blood thinner, we can pump him full of platelets, and we hope the bleeding in his brain will stop, but you need to clearly understand that if we do that, there's about a 95% chance that he's going get to get a bunch of blood clots in his heart and he's going to die. They gave me a 5% chance to live much less ever play the flute again. And I understand what it feels like to literally have everything just go... To be fully transparent with you, because I want you to understand where I was. I remember about day four or five in ICU, I was in so much pain. I hadn't you know, had any food or water or anything. I was just hurting so badly. And I remember just crying out to God and going, God, I can't do this anymore. Now I'm done. I can't fight it. I've got no strength. I'm so tired. Please, oh please, just take me from this cursed life. And then I thought of my wife and kids. I'm still ashamed to say even that wasn't enough. And I cried out to God and I said, but please make sure and send somebody to take care of my family. Just make sure he's not too good looking. <laughs> I've set the bar pretty high, you know, so I want to... Um, so I understand what it feels like. You know, like it's, and I understood what the writer in Ecclesiastes said when he talked about vanity. You grab a hold of something thinking it's going to bring stability and you can kind of hold true to it. Only to open up your hand and realize it's just it's vapor. Man, it's just vanity. There's nothing there. You grab a hold of something else thinking, well, surely that'll do it. That'll bring stability. Open a, only to open up your hand and realize, man, there's nothing there. It's just it's vanity. It's vapor. Man, I understand what that feels like, but I, I also understand what it feels like to be able to say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness because in those moments, I literally had nothing to offer God. Even though I'd, I'd traveled and ministered for God to the best of my ability for over two decades and served in so many different capacities, our family had lived on faith. I'm not sure it was until those moments in ICU where I finally, with complete, complete clarity, understood what it meant to say, God, I've really got, there's nothing I can do. I've got nothing to offer you. Man, this is your show. It's all about you. Just, man, do what you will. See, we're going to have those moments that don't make sense, where we can't figure it out, we have nothing to offer, and we, we got to hold on to our faith for dear life. I call those furnace moments. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember? Uh, they're about to be thrown into the fire, and they say, our God is able to deliver us. And as Christians, we all go, woo, that's right. We don't talk a lot about what they said next. Do you remember? They said, but if he chooses not to, we still will not bow down. Man, that's keeping the faith. When it doesn't make sense, you hang on. When it feels like it's taking God forever to show up, which we no, he's there all along, man, you hang on. When it feels like everything's falling apart, man, you just hang on for dear life. Show that next slide if you would, Rob. You can tell this is a bowl uh, that's been broken. And if you've ever tried to put anything like that back together before your wife or mom gets home, you know that there's always pieces missing and you're left with a bunch of cracks and gaps and all that. Well, the Japanese take a bowl like that, they put it back together, and wherever the cracks and gaps are, they fill it full of gold. And you say to yourself, now, what kind of chucklehead would put pure gold into a broken dish? Well, see, they do that because they believe that when something gets broken and gets put back together that way, it actually becomes more valuable. Because now it has a story to tell. And in, in church, what do we call that big word? A 
testimony, right? See, it's easy to find yourself in pieces where you, got nothing to, you feel like you have nothing to offer to God or to anyone else. But I'm telling you, there's something about surrendering all of that to Christ, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and going, Father, here it is, man. Take it all. Do with it as you will. That God can take all those pieces and put them back together. And wherever we fall short, man, His mercy and grace comes in like the gold and fills all those cracks and gaps. And not only are we made whole again, I actually believe we're made more valuable because now we've been purchased at a price. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, that's something to celebrate because that is the love of God. He can take the very worst of us, the, very, the most broken of us, and make something so very, very beautiful. And I was given a 5% chance to live, much less ever play the flute again. I've been back on the road full time for two years. Has it been easy? No. Do we still have ripple effects from everything our family went through? Yeah. You know, the wind blows and you go like this, waiting <laughs> for the next thing. Man, God is faithful. And he's good. So I don't tell you what I've been through for pity. I don't tell you what I've been through for any other reason other than to encourage you and to say, God is good and God is faithful. And if my family can stand and say that, I know you can as well, regardless of what the situation or circumstance is. I don't know where you are tonight, <coughs> Excuse me, but I pray that if nothing else when you walk out of here, you are assured deeper than ever before that God loves you very much. You know, if you're sitting here tonight and you're like, yay, my life is perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. God must love me best. I'm his favorite because my life is a mwah. If that's you, I have two things to say to you. Number one, I kind of hate you a little bit. <laughs> that's a joke. I don't mean that. And number two, in your perfect life, God loves you very much. But I'm old enough to know that most of us have experienced brokenness, right? Loss, rejection, abandonment, betrayal. Brokenness financially, brokenness relationally, you know, brokenness emotionally, brokenness physically. We can go on and on and on. We've experienced that in some capacity. And maybe you were where I was, so frustrated and so tired, going, man, God, I've tried to serve you faithfully for so long. I just don't understand where my family is right now and why we're going through so much. It's so not cool. Did you know that as you shake your fist at God, he still loves you very, very much? There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is good, and He's faithful, and He loves you very, very much. I'm going to play a song. I don't know if you know it or not. It's a few years old, but it's one of my favorites. It says, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And again, if there's anything I hope you know beyond a shadow of a doubt tonight, is that God loves you very, very, very much. This is How Deep the Father's Love for Us.
no gifts, no power, no wisdom, that I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why don't you stand and let's sing this last verse together. Just make it to cry your heart tonight. Here we go. I will not boast in anything. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain? Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my... Why should I gain again? Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Dear Father in Heaven, I thank You so much for what Your Word teaches us and the examples that are there, the example of Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. The examples of people like Noah and, and Abraham and Joseph and so many countless others that we could point to, Father. But help us to be a people of faith. Man, we know we're going to go through difficult times. We know we're going to face challenges, God. But help us to be people who cling to our faith and hang to our faith first and foremost above all else. Father, if there's anyone here who's hurting or, or struggling in any capacity, Father, I just pray that even now they would be assured of Your love and Your care for them, Father. That even now they would release that burden to you, Father. Even now they would, they would cling to their faith more than ever before. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your salvation that was provided to us, Lord. We thank you for, for deliverance and for, for mercy and grace that guides us through difficult situations and circumstances. Father, may you find us to be faithful. Faithful in everything we say. Faithful in everything we do. Father, may you find us faithful even down to our very thoughts. And we give you the glory and the honor because you and you alone deserve it. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we all agree together by saying, Amen and Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and start that next one. I'm standing at an elevation of almost 12,000 feet here in the heart of the mountains of Ecuador. And on this trip, like so many others, the first thing that strikes me is the extreme poverty that so many children and families face, and even more than that, the depth of the despair that they feel because of that poverty. I just want you to know that in the middle of that, that there is kindness and there is hope. Yesterday, I got to visit my sponsored child, Louisa, and I also got to meet and visit with her mom. We had lunch together. And after lunch, Louisa, who doesn't get chocolate cake a whole lot, took three pieces of chocolate cake and put them on a plate and just kind of held them like, okay, this is my cake. We left there and we went to visit another mom, a very young mom who had a two-year-old daughter. And in that house also lived her grandmother. Three women who shared a very small two-room house, no furniture, no floors, one small bed that the three had to share. Now, as we saw all of this, Louisa and her mom watched it. They saw the poverty, which was even deeper and greater than their own. And I watched how it touched their heart. 
and Luisa's mom kind of nudged Luisa a little bit and Luisa took her chocolate cake and went to all the neighborhood kids who kind of gathered around and started pinching off pieces and giving them to them. A, a girl who didn't have very much gave what she had to show kindness and at least to bring a smile to a child for at least for that moment. It was a beautiful moment to watch, a beautiful moment to experience. If I could sum it up in two words, it would be that, kindness and hope. They show the kindness by taking care of the basic necessities of that child or that family. But more than that, they provide hope. Hope of a better life because all of a sudden a child can go to school instead of having to go fetch water. Hope of, of a better life because all of a sudden there maybe is a future instead of just trying to survive today. And most importantly, the hope that's found in the message of Jesus Christ. Because every single child gets that. I've been sponsoring kids for over 20 years. Currently we sponsor five. Child sponsorship has been a part of my ministry for over 10 years. And I realized through what I experienced today that I just may have had it all wrong. See, I've always thought that it was most important to try and meet their physical needs, to, to provide food and clothing and shelter and all of those things. And I realized today that I've had it backwards. You see, what's most important really is the relationship with the child. Today a sponsored child told me that if his sponsor was standing in front of him and if he could ask him anything, he would ask him this. What was it that you saw in my face? What was it that you saw in my picture that made you pick me? You have an opportunity today to look at a picture and to make a choice. A choice to start a relationship with a child. You know, this is why I do what I do. I'm on the road a lot every weekend. I'm somewhere in multiple places all across the country. And I, you know, I do it because I have a huge, you know, burden on my heart for kids like this. I grew up on the mission field in Costa Rica, Argentina, and Puerto Rico. So I've seen it firsthand. I've, as an adult, I've been to Dominican Republic and Uganda and Honduras and Ecuador and Nicaragua and so many places to see Compassion's work. And they just do amazing, amazing work. And just in case you're not familiar with it, uh, it's based on a one-to-one -one relationship. And your monthly sponsorship provides everything that's necessary for that child to be healthy physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The food, clothing, you know, helps with shelter, medical needs, uh, any emergencies or any school supplies, that kind of stuff. And the best part is it all happens in the name of Jesus Christ. It reinforces the local church. It re reinforces faith. Last year alone, through Compassion's efforts, 250,000 people came to know Christ. That's a quarter of a million new brothers and sisters in Christ on top of food, clothing, shelter, and all that kind of stuff. I have several picture folders that look like this on my table. This is a little Rose from Haiti. She's five years old. If you, the picture you see, that's the child you'll sponsor. You'll be the only person, the only class, or if a couple of people of you get together, only people sponsoring that child so you can write letters back and forth, get to know them, encourage them in their faith. There's no contract. You just do it as long as you're willing and able to do it. Um, one of the things that struck me in Ecuador when I was there is there were a lot of families that wouldn't sign their kids up for Compassion's Help. And when I asked about that and did a little digging, those families wouldn't sign up because they didn't believe people like us really existed. They said, why would people, you know, way over there care anything about us? Which is really ironic for me in the middle because almost with that fail at my table after a service, somebody will say, are these kids really real? And it's so funny to kind of exist between us, but they are. And man, Compassion is doing such a great job. Like I said, I sponsor five kids. It's super simple. You pick the child you want to sponsor. In the back, there's a little blue card. Fill that out. Give it to me. You keep the packet. Just like that, you've changed the life. As always, as a thank you from me, you can have whichever CD of mine you would like as a gift. 
I also have two t-shirts. There's a Don't Be Generic shirt, and there's a uh, our Keep the Faith shirt. Uh, you can have one of those as a gift, as a thank you for me for being willing to change a life and to make a difference. I know poverty like this can seem overwhelming. Man, you and I working together, we can make a difference. Uh, as of right now, there's about 1.8 million children being sponsored through Compassion International in the name of Jesus. And we're making a huge difference. Um, so thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you guys for allowing me to be here. And just know this, I thank of you, man. I will pray for God's richest blessings on your work and your ministry. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. What a, what a great ministry we're talking about here. I'm just amazed at the simplicity of that song, how deep the Father's love. That simple melody, those sim- it's almost unimaginable how deep God's love is for us. And that song brought it alive. Thank you for that. We're going to take a love offering. Uh, Ushers, would you come help me with this? We're gonna, uh, this is David's only source of income here, what we're doing tonight. As he goes to churches and other events to uh, help, uh, we need to help him with that. And also, see the products on the table back there. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take the offering. Thank you, Father, for the way you blessed us tonight. Thank you for this opportunity we have to share in a ministry that uh, touches hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead. I sure hope you guys like Southern Gospel music. If not, you're about to be disappointed.
God bless you. Thank you very, very much. Amen. Thank you, David. Give me a second to get out there, but y'all are dismissed, all right? Good night. Thank you for being here.